0: Amen. I hope your heart was stirred by some of those songs we were just singing. Those are fantastic. I wanted to say delicious for a second. (laughs) That's kind of weird, but I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. It's delicious. Yeah. Uh, We are talking about abide, love, multiply. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. So if you have a copy of the scripture, you can turn your way. If it's digital, you can tap your way to the fourth gospel or the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, to chapter 5. we're going to think about multiplying from the the word and the teaching of Christ. Um, You know, we've been talking about abide, love, and multiply. We've been talking about your connection with the Lord, your connection with the church, and then your connection today with the world. And if you've been doing the abide part, if you've been doing the love part, uh, fantastic. It's going to lead to the multiply part. But in general, when I talk to people, they're more excited about trying to figure out the abide part and the love part than they are about figuring out the multiply part. I want you to just take a second and put yourself there emotionally. I want you to think about the last time you were tempted, we might say convicted, led to share the gospel. How'd that go? Did you follow through with it? I've been listening to more sermons. The preachers should listen to sermons, I guess. I've been starting to try and do that better. And I've been listening to a guy that I really respect in the state. I like him a lot. And he was talking about going for a run and seeing these two guys. And he knew he should share the gospel with them. He just felt this like this is an opportunity. I should try to share the gospel with those guys. And immediately the thought was followed by, but no, I'm running right now. Like, I'm already doing a good thing. I don't have to do that good thing. And he, he, may, he went on a couple of laps and he extended his run by like several miles because he kept saying, like, they'll be gone. I won't have to see him on the next lap. And then they would still be there. Uh, and eventually he did. He followed through, kind of. He said that he walked up to him and he said, Jesus is the Christ. Augustine said that your heart is restless until you find your rest in him. And then he like left. He walked away. That guy's a church planner in our state. Uh, and he he told the story and he said, like, there's no arc to it. Like I I can't I don't know that they came to Christ or like that weird interaction led them to something else. He was just he was trying to express a real experience. And he at least to his credit, he followed through with it. He actually tried something. Now who knows? I mean the word does not return void. Even that word probably did not return void. But what's it like for you? It tends to be the kind of conniption fit moment. David talked about fasting. That's probably the second least popular thing to talk about in Christianity. But the least least popular uh, is probably talking to people about talking about Jesus. Because it is awkward. You're telling somebody else something that's close to you. It's a core thing. So there's a vulnerability there. Because you think, what if they strike back? What if they say something that does unravel This thing that I'm putting so much into, that I'm getting so much comfort from, the the songs we just sang are only delicious if they're true. They're not fantasies. You're a child of God or you're not. And if you are, bliss! If you're not, what's left? Evangelism opens you up to that. Evangelism opens you up to scorn. Maybe you're not worried about your faith being shaken, but you're worried about your image being shaken the people that you're going to talk to are going to think differently of you when you bring this up. And then I'm always thinking in my head about the second experience. So I share the gospel with you and then I see you at the next volleyball game. (laughs) What happens then? You're nervous, I'm nervous. Am I going to talk about it again? Who's more scared that I'm going to talk about it again? Me or you? But it's necessary. It's something that God gives us to do. It's something that is a big problem if you don't do it. But as I've lived by God's grace, I've been around people that have been consistent in their evangelism. And I've started to see that it's also a big problem if you are consistent in evangelism. Here's what I mean by that. If you actually are consistent in evangelism, you're often going to be very familiar with failure. I, I don't say failure is in you did a bad job. I say failure is in you hoped that this person would receive Christ and they didn't. So, maybe a different word that would be more appropriate would be rejection. I sat uh, in this room, and we had a meeting of these different planters from different places, guys that were trying to get work going and, and had started churches. And there was a guy there named Steve Pearson, and he sat on one of the three quarter height chairs with one of our round tables. And he was—it was like his turn. He was going to share a little bit about what was going on in his ministry. And he had uh, one of those San Pellegrino bottles from up in the case up front. So it's a glass bottle that kind of looks like a wine bottle, but it's just sparkling water. But he was holding it like a wine bottle from like a, a bum from the fifties or something, like hangdog look, five o'clock shadow, and he's holding onto this thing like it's going to support him. And he's holding onto it, and he's talking to us from despair. He was going to be faithful. He wasn't going to quit. But that was kind of the despairing thing is that he can't quit because the effort was just meaningless. How many of you are in that camp? I know there are a lot of Christians that haven't tried. But for the ones that have, have you gotten to that place yet? The discouragement of not seeing it work. Man, we got problems. So, how do we keep going and how do we get started? I want to look at it from Luke chapter 5. Jesus is preaching. He's, he's encountering people. He's, he's seeing a lot of miraculous things happen and the crowd responding. And on one occasion, it says in Luke chapter 5, starting verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. means they were done. They're getting their nets ready so that tomorrow they can go back out. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, also called Peter. Jesus asked Peter to put out a little from the land. And he sat down in the boat and he taught the people from the boat. At this point in Jesus' ministry, it's Luke chapter 5. We're still early in this gospel. Jesus is a hit. That's a mixed bag. But he's got a lot of stuff happening. He's doing some miracles, and the people are interested. But when he first preached, well you understand in Luke chapter 4, he, he stood up in the synagogue. Now, there was the temple, and then there were synagogues. And the synagogues was a place where people, it's what the name literally, literally means, they could just gather together. And they all, the Jewish people in this area, gather together, and Jesus goes up, as was his custom, he was a regular synagogue attender, But on this day, he goes up to the front, he finds the Isaiah scroll, and he opens it up, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they all went, Whoa! Fantastic. But saying fantastic was to their own interpretation of those words because as he continued, he then made it clear that he was going to be doing what God had intended for him to do, which included taking that word beyond the people of Israel. Well, that completely bumfuddled all the people that were listening to him because they assumed that he was going to then take Israel and put them over the nations of the world. And instead, he's saying he's going to neglect Israel in order to preach to the nations of the world. No, go. And in that day, on that that day, they started to try and push him off a cliff. Now, as somebody who also preaches on Sundays, I'm hesitant to tell you that that's an option. Uh, But for these people, that was like a a credible response to the preaching was to say like, all right, we're done. You're going off a cliff right now. Let's go. And they all like, and he somehow, I don't know if it's miraculous or just skill sets, but he was able to get out of there. And the next story is him, him preaching and him preaching to a big crowd of people at this lake. And right off the bat, we get two lessons from the master about evangelism. And when I say evangelism, I mean telling other people about holiness, sin, and Jesus. So, so when he tells us to share, he tells us to share after giving us an example of sharing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this example and try to understand as well as we can how to start And how to keep going. What does it mean when he gives us his model for evangelism or his example, and there are many examples through the gospels, of evangelism? Well, one thing he does, and it's something that we just talked about, is that he includes in his speaking about the gospel difficult things that he says. He he speaks difficult things for the people to hear. I know that you're nervous about evangelism because you're going to say something that people might be offended by or disagree with, but you can't get away from those things if you're going to do evangelism like Jesus did. Doesn't mean you have to be rude, but it does mean you have to be distasteful. You're going to say things that other people don't have a taste for. Jesus models that. He gives us, by his grace, an example of saying things that the people did not want to hear. That means that the life of a a person who's going to follow Jesus, just like Jesus's life himself, is a life of joy, but maybe not a life of happiness. Let's get our expectations straight. Now, I want to tease this a little bit because over the next couple of weeks, between next Sunday and Easter, we're going to be looking through the gospel of Luke at joy, at that concept. Because I don't know if you've thought about it much. But the Jesus of the Gospels isn't portrayed as laughy. You would think he would be. He's got a perfect connection to the Father. He's God. Why doesn't doesn't the scripture ever talk about him as like giddy or funny? He says things I think are funny, but it's kind of cutting and you're not sure in the moment if he was like winking while he did it. I know a lot of you have watched The Chosen. I haven't watched The Chosen. Sorry, I don't know. It's a little weird for me to give Jesus lines. But, but if you just read the Gospels, which is what those shows are based on, in the Gospels we get Jesus weeping and Jesus angry. We get Jesus abandoned. We get Jesus alone. We don't get a lot of Jesus laughing. I don't know that that means he didn't. But I do think the Lord gave us that example to say there's a difference between being happy And being joyful. Jesus committed to the mission that he was given. And he had joy in the Lord because he knew what was set before him. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. But he does have to endure a cross. If we're going to do ministry the way that the master did ministry, we need to be able to say difficult things. Realizing that it's going to be painful. But if this is true then we have to do that painful thing. There's a story about a guy named Charles Peace. He was a guy that was going to be killed in England because he was a criminal. And he wasn't a believer. And as he's being led to his execution, you had the prison chaplain talking to him about hell. But apparently, I mean, maybe they just had a lot of executions of that day. Uh, I don't know. But the chaplain, as he's talking about it, was saying it in kind of a deadpan way. Hey, and listen, man, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Uh, Hell is where you're going to be today if you don't trust in Jesus, your Lord and Savior. And the guy who's on his way to being killed confronts the chaplain. And he says, sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believed, then although, although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and the breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. Let's adjust our expectations, folks. When we're talking about saying hard things to people in evangelism, we are trading in our happiness, but it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile because of the importance of the message. It's worthwhile because of the command of our Lord. It's worthwhile because of the love we bear for the people we speak to. You're going to speak the truth, but you're going to speak the truth in love. And that love is going to often involve very painful displays. I talked to my kids about this. If you love other people, if you expand the circle of people that you love, you expand your vulnerability to suffering, don't you? I don't know that you can love somebody if you know that they're suffering and not suffer a little bit yourself. Well, if we tell you to love everybody, if Mr. Hobbs can preach about the Good Samaritan and tell you to love everybody like Jesus said, how are you possibly going to live day to day with a real happiness? Well, I don't know that you will. But you can live day to day with a great deal of joy. Now, like I say, we're going to spend like seven weeks on that concept, but I want you to begin by understanding That we are called to proclaim good news to the poor, even if that means that your life between now and death isn't going to be as self-centered and as pleasure-focused as maybe it has been to this point. Okay, I was going to give you a moment there to be like, amen, but that's okay, that's okay. Uh, I'll get you on the next one. I'm just kidding. I know that was really hard to hear. Uh, I, I don't love saying that. Because it's one thing to stand up here and say it. It's another thing for it to be like later this afternoon. And then what are you going to do, preacher? Do you apply what you just said to all these people? I, I get that. I'm not really thrilled about it either. But I am trusting that there's a joy here. I am trusting that if he calls us to proclaim good news to the poor... If he calls us to proclaim liberties to the captives, if he calls us to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, those very, very good things are going to be very, very opposed. They're going to be very painful and they're going to be very difficult. Ask anybody who has sought to bring about change in the world. There are endless feel-good movies about it. In the second act, they're always about to quit because it's so difficult difficult, but then there's that little break and then da, 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 you know, big music, third act victory. And, And we're in the second act. We're in the second act, but we are called to this ministry. And Jesus, as he's preaching and modeling his preaching is modeling it to the fisherman that's in the boat with him. Look at this next part. Look at verse four. When Jesus had finished speaking, he looks and he says to Simon, to Peter, that's sitting there in the boat with him, this this fisherman that had been fishing. He just finished washing his nets. And he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, "Uh, master, (laughs) we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about what it feels like to do evangelism. Evangelism involves a lot of rejection. He said, listen, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, I'm making a little bit of a leap here in equating the the practice of fishing with the practice of evangelism. But in doing that, I'm, I'm trading on the deeper meaning of what Jesus is doing in this parable. He often compared the two practices of fishing and evangelism. And so what he's doing here doesn't really have anything to do with Peter's fishing industry. What it does have to do with is teaching Peter and then by Peter's words, the rest of us about our following of Jesus's ministry, of Jesus's fishing. And when he's describing to Simon this, this command, hey, go, do it again, but this time, put your nets down on the, well, no, he just says, put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon has to say, master, listen, we toiled all night, but at your word, I'll let down The Nets. It kind of makes sense that evangelism won't work super well all the time. When you look at the people that you're talking to, you're often trying to convince them of something that is completely different from the worldview they currently have. It's a little optimistic to expect one conversation from you to involve just a complete turnaround for people. You know, days past, Billy Graham, like there's times when a lot of the culture was pretty close to biblical Christianity already. And what you're doing, you're just kind of helping them over the finish line. I don't know that that's the experience that a lot of people have today. And I think our evangelism reflects this. And yet, everything arrayed against us, look at verse six. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. What am I saying? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is that it's the Lord who saves. If it's the Lord who saves then there's a couple of implications to keep us going in this difficult but lovely, joyful but maybe not happy task. If it's the Lord that saves, then nobody is too lost and no evangelist is too bad at it, too inept. What happened? Peter was a professional fisherman who spent all night fishing and caught nothing. And if you've ever gone fishing with somebody else, you know... That's kind of the thing that happens. I don't like fishing. I'm not a fisherman, but I like fishermen. Like I'm friends with a guy who likes to go fishing, and I went with him one time. It's rough. (laughs) Listen, man, if we're just going to stand and talk, can we not do it right here? Like it smells bad. Can we go somewhere else? But we did. You know, okay, we're standing there. And they do their fishing thing, and I think they're excited about the possibility but if you ever go fishing or if you like fishing, you know there's a lot of times where unless you're going to a stock pond, there's just nothing that happens. Peter probably understood that. His life was kind of built around fishing. And yet, at the word of the master, as he continues to fish, he finds a miraculous catch. You and I, as we go about our evangelism, may be Peter before Jesus speaks. And we've gone all night and we got Nothing. But as we continue and as we're faithful, at any time the Lord may decide to save. That means that nobody is too far gone. I want you to think about the examples that we have in Scripture. The examples we have in Scripture of conversion are people who are sometimes close, but sometimes very far from the Lord. We get this description of Paul that he is breathing out threats against the church, going on his way to kill men and women who say they have believed in Christ. When Jesus meets him and he becomes the Apostle Paul. Around this time in this story where they're going around the Sea of Galilee, they go to the other side and there's this guy, this Gerasene demoniac, meaning man with demons in him. And he is busting out of chains and screaming and living in a cemetery because he's got all of this stuff going on. But meet Jesus and what happens? The people are a little freaked out to see him because he's sitting at Jesus' side in his right mind. Who's too far? Who's too far for God to save him if it's God that does the saving? Flip that over and say, who's too bad at this? If it's God that does the saving. Now there's some basic stuff we want you to know. You need to know the gospel well enough to preach the Christian gospel and not some sort of version of it that you think is more palatable to people or some version of it that you captured from somebody else who doesn't understand the scriptures. There's some basics ABCs that you do need to get right, but it's a shockingly small amount of information. And if you're already a Christian, that means that you've already understood and believed that small amount of very important information. Can we talk about doing two paragraphs? What we've asked you to do is mine your own experience of coming to Christ in order to tell a story-based gospel where you can just say to somebody very quickly about how you were lost, but you were found through Jesus. That same thing can happen to you. A, B, C. Quick, easy, personal, relatable. I, I pray that you'll do that and that we'll, as a church, continue to develop that idea. But when we learned our uh, evangelism training from a local guy when I first moved to Utah, he was just this brilliant guy that we sat kind of under and listened to his teaching. He was just really clear that evangelism can involve a lot of information. You can learn a lot about philosophy and you can learn a lot about history and you can learn a lot about a, a topic we call apologetics, which is just defense of the faith. And you can have names and dates and facts in your head. And you should. It's great if you can. And we would go through this training, and he would teach us all of this kind of subtle and interesting ways that, that he would respond to specific things that people would say back to him. And at the end of it, you, you walk away feeling really overwhelmed, like, this can't be for me. I can't be an evangelist, because that guy's an evangelist, and he knows so much, I'll never get close to knowing what he knows. And every time he would do the training, Schaff would always finish by saying, listen, if you have believed the gospel, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you have enough to share the gospel. And he was right. For you to lovingly speak, what God has done for you is enough. The Holy Spirit's the one that saves. He's the one that can bring them to himself. Now there's another thing that might be slowing you down. You might think that it's not possible. Well, it is. The Holy Spirit can save anybody. You might think that you're not really trained to do it. Well, yeah, we can train you more, but you're probably closer than you think. But there's another reason that you might not share. In verse 8, Peter saw the catch and he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What does Peter represent as kind of his biggest problem? it's not just that he doesn't know how to fish because he kind of does know how to fish. It's not just that there is a catch or there isn't. He experiences both of those things. But in seeing the catch and in seeing the kind of miraculous power of Christ, he wants to leave because he's aware of his own sin. If you can actually think of a time when you were tempted to share and you you, you really remember that experience. Is it possible that when you were thinking about sharing, there was a voice inside you that said, yes, somebody should share, but not you. And that voice wasn't just saying because you don't have the bravery or you don't have the training. That voice was saying because of what you did last night. That voice was saying because of the kind of person you are. Man, sin is a big reason that we don't share. Sin is something that uh, it tempts you away from the priorities of the Lord. Sin is something that makes you feel as though you could never be the one that God might use. Peter certainly expresses that. He expresses it really beautifully by falling at his feet and saying, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Well, well, what does the master do to fix that? How does Jesus meet us in that exact spot and show us that that's not actually the case? that, That you're not disqualified because of your sin? Well, gosh... Look at the rest of what Jesus does in his ministry. Jesus speaks to us clearly about how he is with us and he's not going to leave us. He'll never forsake us. There's a really famous evangelism passage you can get to in Matthew chapter 28. It's not talking about fishing. It's talking about specifically evangelism. At the very end of Jesus' ministry, he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. How can Jesus say that? Peter just said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He's right. If you're a sinful person, you can't stand before the holy. Why is Jesus able at the end of his ministry to say that he will never leave or never forsake Peter? Why can he give the exact response that Peter needed in Luke chapter 5? Well, because of what takes place between Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 28. Jesus' ministry wasn't just to teach. His ministry wasn't just to live a perfect life, but to live a perfect life and then to die a sinner's death. Here's the heart of the gospel. This is what we believe, and this is why you can share. It's what you share, and it's why you can share. Jesus died so that you, who are a sinner, can be made clean, can be totally forgiven. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering, we're eating again, not just cracked bread. We're eating love and forgiveness. We're eating a symbol of his sacrifice of care for you. Oh, man, in your pride, you want to think that he's given you a little bit and you're going to earn the rest. But that's not the case. Jesus is telling Peter. He doesn't disagree with Peter that he's not holy. Yeah, Jesus is holy and Peter is not. He shouldn't be in the same boat with Peter except for his love, except for the sacrifice that he would make, except that he would drink Peter's death, Peter's sin. Receive God's wrath for Peter's sin. So that Peter could then become Jesus' man. That he could promise that he would never leave or forsake him. And that's exactly what he says in a little bit of kind of cloudy language in Luke 5. Because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. So Peter wouldn't understand what's happening. But he says in Luke chapter 5 verse 9. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee. Also who would become disciples. They're also partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Man, if there's one thing that stops us from evangelism, I think it's fear. If it's not fear of the other person, it's fear of failure. And if it's not fear of failure, it's fear of our own sort of selves being exposed that we can't be the ones to do this. It's fear that this is going to be really, really hard. Well, you know, it is going to be really hard. But it's going to be a difficulty that comes with the Lord who is with you. It's not going to be something new. It's going to be something He has experienced and is leading you through. It's going to be something that has promised effect and victory. It doesn't always end up this way. We don't always get to see what happens. But that guy that I was telling you about that was holding that San Pellegrino like it was a lifeline... Do you know that last year, the church that he planted baptized 72 people? Saratoga Springs. You're like, oh, it's probably in the southeast, right? Oh, that's probably sub-Saharan Africa, right? Saratoga Springs. Last year, they baptized 72 people. It's not a mega church. It's like doubling in size. <laughs> what happened? Can I tell you? I went, we, we watched the sermon. Where he was talking about, hey, last year we baptized 72 people. And there's this really like uh, faithless part of me that's like, how did he do that? What, what is he really funny? God, hey, he's, he's more fit than I am. Is that it? Their music, that's not better. What is it? Well, they got a big screen. I don't know. Our screen's pretty big. What, what is it? How do they baptize 72 people? Well, the Lord decided to do it. They continue to be faithful when the Lord decided to do what he wanted to do. 72 people, 72 souls were displayed to the world as Christ and the enemy's no longer. Man, listen, you and I are called to abide with the Lord. And if we abide, we have something to share. You and I are called to love one another. If we love one another, you're going to be really close to people who are going to be excellent examples for you, excellent mentors for you and being faithful to share the gospel. Now you just need to go. You just need to share. You just need to multiply. We have a shirt that we've sold for a long time. The uh, fully known, fully loved. But we have a second shirt and the second shirt says, "Just keep fishing." In the book of Hebrews, it talks about these people that had incredible victory before the Lord. They put foreign armies to flight. The the dead are raised. But in that same passage, it also, also talks about people who never saw the victory that they prayed for. People who were sawn in two. People who went around uh, homeless and sleepless. Ones of whom the world was not worthy. You're not promised to see the effect of your faithfulness. But you are promised, as you are faithful, that he is with you. And that he is doing, he's, he's bringing about all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he's bringing about all things so that his name is glorified on the earth. Man, I I don't know what you think about evangelism. But I hope that as you're starting to put the pieces together, you can understand the kind of extremity of the language that we have. It says, uh, this guy, Charles Spurgeon, that we really like said, if sinners be damned, meaning if the gospel is true, at least... If people are going to continue to reject the gospel, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That kind of veracity is what your life should display does it? Hey, if not, we're not here to kick you in the head. We're here to say, well, let's figure this out. If you believe the gospel, then this is exactly how you can and maybe you should feel. Let's get there. Let's get there and accept the joy that God has for us. Look, come back next week. We'll keep talking about the how of all of this, but just keep coming. The next seven weeks, between next week and Easter, we're going to think about the joy that God has displayed for us in the Gospels. The joy the joy that makes it worth it to, for Christ, go to the cross for us, speak about Christ, even in the teeth of opposition. What we're going to do now is prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a way that we understand a little bit more about what Christ has done on our behalf. The band's going to come up and they're going to play. And and as they're playing, I want you to take a second and prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper. And then when you're ready, come up and get the elements, have a seat, and hang on to them. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. But as you're preparing your heart, I just want to ask you to ask a question about what your life is before Christ. Are you his or not? The Lord's Supper, according to Jesus, is very clearly for people who have put all their faith and all their trust in Christ alone for salvation. If that's you, then we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. But if that's not you yet, then please have, have just the integrity to not take the Lord's Supper, but instead to be thinking about what these things mean and maybe give us the opportunity to talk to you about it afterward. But if this is you, and as you prepare your heart, I want you to prepare your heart through repentance, but also in anticipation of the joy of remembering the grace that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning that you would give us the grace in a a week where we think about a duty that is incredibly important and often incredibly neglected, that we wouldn't sink under that failure to despair. But instead, Father, we would be woken up, woken up to the reality of the call that we have in the gospel woken up to the need of billions around the world who don't currently call you Lord. Lord, that we be woken up to the incredible resources that you've given us so that we're not just floundering, even though it often feels like what we're doing doesn't have huge impact, Father. We're being faithful as we are empowered and commissioned by Christ the King. Lord, as we go to take this supper, will you remind us of the reason that we can feel that closeness to you? the reason that we can argue back against the enemy that says that that we're not qualified, will you help us to remember the grace that you've given us by dying on our behalf and the love that you've promised us by rising from the dead. Please do these things for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray, amen.